Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Story time. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. While on our honeymoon in June of 1985, my wife and I were backpacking overnight in the Mount Jefferson wilderness area. We were camped about three miles from the trailhead. I think it was called the Whitewater Trailhead. We were camped just off the trail at around 5,300 feet and there were no other campers around for miles. Sometime during the middle of the night, we were both awakened by very heavy footsteps coming down the trail. I was an experienced backpacker and had encountered deer, elk, and bear before, 
including having my camp raided by a black bear in the Adirondack Mountains. This creature was definitely bipedal. It took two steps, stopped, took two more steps, stopped, etc. With each set of steps the creature was clearly much closer to our camp. After the third or fourth set of steps I let out the loudest scream I could muster. The creature immediately leapt, took two steps away from camp and was gone. Its actions gave the impression that it was attempting to be stealthy and investigate our camp. After a few minutes we left the tent, we did not actually see the creature because the tent flap was zipped closed, built up the fire, and made lots of noise. Once there was sufficient light, after several long hours, we examined the trail for footprints. The footsteps appeared to be coming from the trail, but as conditions had been dry, we found no prints. There were also no other signs of the creature around the area. As an experiment, my wife went into the tent, laid down, and I stomped down the trail as loudly as possible in my lug boots, I am 6 foot 3 inches and weighed around 220 at that time. She heard my stomping but it was nothing compared to the night before where we could actually feel the ground shake. Also, despite my best efforts, I was unable to leave any prints on the trail. After thoroughly extinguishing the fire, we packed up and went back to our car. We did not report the incident to the Marion County Sheriff. Back in the 1980s, I was stationed in Prague, Czechoslovakia within the US military. I came home to visit my family for Christmas, and while at their house, me and my stepfather got into a heated argument about politics, of all things. At one point, he said something that really pissed me off so much, I decided not to stay any longer. It would only lead to trouble between his bones. So after spending some time with him, I walked up the door on him without giving any notice or saying goodbye to anybody else in my family. My wife was busy at work when this happened, so she did not have an opportunity to say goodbye either. This was around 4 pm in the evening. I began walking on the street where my car is parked, just a few blocks away. As I'm walking along, I hear this very loud whooshing sound directly overhead. At first, I thought it was maybe a helicopter, as this thing had passed overhead or at least oncoming, but it sounded nothing like one. The noise this thing reminded me of was what you'd hear like if you took a time-lapse recording from maybe an aircraft carrier or something similar. It sounded as though there were multiple engines within the object as well, due to the various levels of pressure coming from different directions, which kind of created an oscillating effect that shook everything below it. Adding to this deafening sound, the closer it came, in order for me to understand what this was, I ran as fast as I could to my car, threw it in reverse, and started speeding up to the street to get back onto the main highway. As I'm pulling out of the parking spot on that side of the street, I see it for the first time. This thing flies right across my windshield and overhead. My first thought was, oh no, because now that it's close up, I can see this thing has a distinct human form and although its body seems elongated and muscular like an athlete or something similar, it had wings on its arms which made me think of a bat but without fur or any feathery appendages. It also had legs with feet so large that from the distance I saw it I would have never believed it for real had I not seen this with my own eyes. As this thing was flying overhead, 
It turned its head and looked right at me with a very menacing glare that totally said, I see you. I'll never forget the feeling of being busted for doing something wrong by somebody old enough to be your father. That's what this thing felt like. And it had a long protruding snout kind of like a beak or maybe an anteater or something similar, and very large orbish black eyes. Its skin and face were also very pale. When I drove off, I looked back to see where it went. The thing was gone, just like a ghost. I never knew they were in this area until after my encounter with them, but I read about similar sightings happening online. This really surprised me at the time. I never saw anything like it or even heard anybody else talk about them until now. Now that I know about their existence, I'm talking about gargoyles. This story comes from one of my friends who used to be ranger at the national park I work at, and not from my personal experience. I've asked him to tell me his scariest experience at the job, and it just so happened to be his last. For immersion's sake, I'll tell it from the first person view. My normal shifts were during the day, 9 to 5 like most people, but on that day, we were short-handed on the night shift staff because the last person who worked during those hours had just quit. We had lately had a whole lot of people quitting the night shift. So that meant I had to cover. Weirdly enough, I had never had to work the graveyard shift before then, and I was actually excited for it. I had brought some coffee and 5-hour energy with me because the hours ran 10 to 5, and there was no way I'd make it that far naturally. I got to my tower right before 10, when it was already pitch black, and the cold July night had fully set in. The tower was fairly tall, with several flights of stairs leading up to the top. The whole thing was mostly surrounded by thick forest, except for the trail I came in from, and a murky pond that was just to the right of one of the tower's legs. The pond itself was covered in those little frog pads and had algae floating around over the surface, it was actually quite big for a natural lagoon. I climbed up, and all I could hear was the non-stop sounds of crickets, frogs, and the occasional owl. When I hit the top, I fumbled with my keys until I finally found the right one, and walked right on in. The one room was small and square-shaped, three of the walls were mostly glass, and the other one was opaque and had the door I just came in. The roof went up like a pyramid for a short length until it peaked, and it was all made of wood. To my left was a nicely made bed and a nightstand with a lamp and a flashlight on top, not like I'd be using the bed though. On the wall next to that was my CB radio and communications stand, which every one of those towers had. Next to that sat my refrigerator and microwave, which was part of a small kitchen that extended to the other wall as well. Inside the kitchen on the right wall were several cabinets, some small ones that held snacks and some canned foods, and another set of giant cabinets that I couldn't open, which likely had vacuums and other cleaning supplies that were above my pay grade. Roomy. I went over to the communication stand and did my standard check to make sure everything was properly working. I called into the ranger station's channel and said well Donnie it looks like it's just you and me tonight. Donnie didn't say anything back, so I figured he was just taking a shit. I went and grabbed the flashlight on the stand and reached into one of its drawers, pulling out a set of binoculars from it. 
I went back out onto the balcony and checked to make sure no fire hazards or any other kind of dangerous things were over there. Once I checked that box of off my to-do list, I headed back inside and pulled out the chair from the communications stand and put it by one of the glass walls, and grabbed a granola bar from one of the kitchen cabinets to munch on. I put the binoculars up to my eyes and looked over the surrounding forest. It didn't seem like any animals were up and about, and no birds were in the sky either. I skimmed over a couple of clearings to make sure that no teenagers were off camping illegally. Then I went and peeked over at a far ridge, where I saw a snowman standing alone in a gap of the trees. Hold the F up. It was July. I peeked again to see it wasn't a snowman, but some kid in a shitty ghost costume. It looked like the ones from Charlie Brown, with the big black holes for eyes that looked more like they were colored black than actual holes. The kid was still, and staring right into my direction, unmoving. I couldn't see the kid's parents anywhere, and by now it was rolling up on 11, so that meant something was up. I broke contact on the kid and walked to the radio, calling into the station. Donnie, you off the shitter yet? Barely made it out, but I'm here I chuckled, Donnie was always good for a laugh. There's some kid with a blanket walking around the southeast sector, and they look alone. A blanket? What the hell are you talking about? It's a ghost costume, it's got the black holes for eyes and stuff. You mean like the Charlie Brown cost can you check it out? Yeah I'll go out and see what's up, I'll call in on the walkie talkie to tell you what I see. Roger that. I turned off the radio and crossed over to the nightstand drawer to grab the walkie talkie. Once I had it I sat back down in the chair and put the binoculars to my eyes, zooming into where the kid was. The ridge was empty with no kid in sight, which I knew would make this a thousand times harder. I pulled up the antennae on the walkie-talkie and dialed to the right channel. Donnie you hear me? Yep, loud and clear, I'm getting close to the sector, I'm heading up to a ridge for a vantage point. Perfect, that's where I saw the kid, but they've moved on since then. Well I'll just check around to see if I can find anything. I watched as Donnie came over the ridge, waving his flashlight around the dark, until he looked towards the tower and shrugged. Nothing over here. Damn, hopefully he turns up again, until then I'll just notify the police and check with any missing reports. Alright I'll go back to Donnie's voice cut out and I saw his flashlight turn off in the distance. The small lit up spot where he stood was swallowed in darkness. Donnie? You there? Donnie? I heard no response and I rushed outside the door, and around the corner to where I saw him, yelling his name, only to hear my voice echo into the woods. And that's when it hit me. There wasn't a single other sound in that entire forest. The crickets and frogs had stopped chirping, the wind didn't rustle through the leaves. Everything was completely standstill. I could hear my heartbeat throbbing in my ears, and nothing else. I moved my flashlight around the woods for some futile attempt of finding him. I got into that state of mind where I got so scared my throat closed up, and if I moved I felt like something very bad was gonna happen. I had to do something now. I turned around and as I did, I glanced at the stairs below me. At the bottom stood a skinny, horrifically angled woman. She was tall, dripping with water, with black hair and dark, 
murky blue skin that stretched across her bent and broken bones. Her gray dress was shredded, and her black shoes were muddy and wet. And her face. Her eyes were milky white, and her mouth hung wide open like a snake, like her jaw had been grossly broken. She let out a blood-curdling and ear-piercing scream of agony and began to shuffle up the stairs so fast that I snapped out of my fear lock, and I ran the F back inside, slamming and locking the door behind me. There was no way she could run that fast, even if all of her bones weren't broken into wrong directions. I ran back to the kitchen and grabbed the biggest knife I could find, and then I pulled out the walkie-talkie, screaming into it. Is anyone there? Donnie where the F are you? Someone answer me goddammit. Then I heard the creaking of a door, I slowly turned, and I froze when I saw what was there. The door was still there, locked and shut, and had been completely undisturbed. What scared me was the once locked giant cabinet that now stood open, with a kid dressed like a Charlie Brown ghost standing just in front of it. I stood there, unmoving until I heard the little shit giggle. I recognized the giggle. No way. I pulled off the sheet to see one of Donnie's kids, Marvin, sporting a smirk and a walkie-talkie. Dad. Joey. I got him. Ha. Pissed his pants just like I said he would write? He and his other son laughed from the other end of the walkie. I was mad, but glad that I wasn't about to get murdered in a goddamn wooden tower. I grabbed his walkie and shot back pissed me off is what you did you asshole. I hope you're happy. Hearing you scream like a little girl sure did make me happy alright. Yeah screw you too, that wasn't even me, that was your stupid zombie chick, who was that, your wife? My what? Does the ghost look like a zombie from that far away? You said yourself it looked like Charlie. Not the ghost dumbass, the woman on the stairs, she screamed and ran up them so that she could scare me into the tower. Hell she must be like an Olympic runner, did you get Usain Bull? Dean, I didn't put no woman on the stairs. Upon hearing that he would have the night shift for the next couple of weeks until they found a replacement, my friend quit and vowed never to return to that park. To this day he swears that either Donnie never told him about that park being a prank, or that he saw something entirely unrelated. I've began to question my own participation in the night shifts, and consider myself lucky that the few times I've been on it I had been stationed at the north and eastern sectors. Part 2. There have been few occasions where I have actually taken the night shift. Most of the time I wrongfully pass out in the provided bed and wait until my shift ends. This story actually takes place during one of those occasions. I was fast asleep in the bed, even though the mattress was hard and didn't adjust to my back. I had done my sight check and stared at the woods for about half an hour, but time moves on and my attention wavers, so I came up with sleeping as my one solution to boredom. In an instant I realized I was awake, and I immediately sat up in the bed. Something had woken me up. It was one of those occasions where something loud happens and you wake up, but don't process it in time to register what it was. Whatever it was, it must have been loud. Glancing towards my alarm clock I could see that as was 3.21 am. I rubbed my eyes of what little sleepiness was still in me, and looked around to see if maybe something had fallen. Everything seemed to be in place, but the lights were off and my nocturnal vision is less than supreme. I heard something shut. The tower door. 
The door was wide open, flapping in the wind. That must have been it, I left the door open a little and a strong gust of wind must have thrown it open and against the wall. I guess it wasn't anything closing after all? That gust of wind was now going through the room, and disturbing my warm temperature. I rolled off my sheets and hopped out of bed towards the door. I pushed it with some force towards the wall, hoping to recreate the sound and trigger a memory. But the door didn't even reach all the way to the wall, its hinge keeping it firm. I shut the door, fully this time, and went back to my stone-hard sleeping spot. I was able to fall back into a doze fairly quickly, before I was awoken again by what I assumed to be the exact same thing. I still didn't hear it. I looked towards the door, and saw that it still remained shut, unperturbed since I last saw it. The alarm clock read 3.39, I had only been asleep for 18 minutes. I grew annoyed at the thought of not being able to fall asleep, and got up to search the kitchen. Being the same kitchen as every other towers I could easily locate and check off each item I found as not being the culprit. All knives still in their holder, the microwave off, blender unplugged. The toaster didn't seem to be the cause, so that meant it probably wasn't an electronic making the noise. The floor was clean and all cabinets were shut. I was truly clueless, and gave up my search to head to sleep. I sat under my covers, still awake, now in day mode because of all of my detective work. Then I heard it. It was a scream. A scream that sounded like a car tire stuck screeching on asphalt, I was only able to identify it as a vocal product because of the changes in pitch, going up and down in its high tone. It sounded. Inhuman, blood-curdling and agonizing. I jumped out of the bed, tripping on my covers and looked around, by now the screaming had stopped, but it was so loud that I knew it had to be coming from inside. I looked back to the kitchen, whatever it was must be in there. I looked from the appliances on the counter, to the drawers and utensils that were laid out, to the two giant cabinets that were at the other end of the kitchen. The office joker Donnie was on vacation, in Hawaii, I had seen him post about it just earlier that day. There was no one else that worked here that was like that which meant. This wasn't a prank. I grabbed one of the knives that had sat in the holder, and crept my way to the cabinet. I reached one arm to the silver handle, the other poised with the kitchen knife, ready to defend myself. I threw open the door and readied myself for an attack. An attack that didn't come. I saw nothing in the cabinet besides a broom and other supplies that were above my pay grade, at first at least, until I glanced downwards to the raccoon that was crouched in the corner. It screamed that monstrous scream, and I tripped backwards as it ran over me to safety, under my rock of a bed. Even it knew that mattress was unbreakable. I opened the door again and poked at the raccoon with the broom until it finally ran back outside. So maybe I did hear a door shut after all. Poor thing must have been shut in the there by the wind. It didn't matter, the noise was gone and I was finally able to go back to sleep. I curled under my blankets and rested my head on the pillow, in serene peace, completely unaware of the horrific banshee that lied just above me on the ceiling. I'm kidding about the banshee. Raccoons are known, at least around my area, for their horrific screams, which conveniently are heard most frequently in the middle of the night. I myself had never had the pleasure of hearing one of them in person before this encounter.
If all of you readers are satisfied with this story, I would gladly keep going with this series, not forever, but I would hope to continue it for a decent amount of time. In the meantime, watch out for the screaming raccoons my friends. Deep within the labyrinthine corridors of a government agency, I, Jordan Davis, a diligent data analyst with an insatiable curiosity, found myself embroiled in a conspiracy that would change my life forever. In a quiet corner of the agency's digital archives, I stumbled upon files marked with a level of classification that sent shivers down my spine. These documents contained irrefutable evidence that an army general had successfully captured a creature with extraordinary and inexplicable abilities. As I delved deeper into the files, my heart raced with a mix of excitement and trepidation. The creature, known only as Subject Omega, possessed powers that defied the laws of nature, it could manipulate matter, bend time, and even alter reality itself. The implications of such a discovery were staggering, and I knew that I had stumbled upon something that the world was not meant to know. My mind raced with questions. How had they captured such a being? What were they planning to do with it? And why was this information hidden from the public eye? My insatiable curiosity turned into a burning desire to uncover the truth and expose the secrets that were being kept in the shadows. As I delved deeper into the labyrinth of classified information, I attracted the attention of not only the government, but also a secretive CIA organization known as Echelon. Echelon's primary objective was to maintain control over information that could disrupt the delicate balance of power in the world. They viewed the revelation of Subject Omega's existence as a threat to that balance and were determined to ensure the secret remained buried. Realizing the danger I was in, I reached out to an old acquaintance, Amelia Morgan, a former intelligence officer who had become disillusioned with the very agencies she once served. Amelia was the only person I could trust. With her help, I navigated a treacherous landscape of deception, danger, and deadly pursuits. Together, we raced against time, piecing together clues and unearthing hidden truths about the creature's origins and purpose. Our journey took us to remote locations, hidden research facilities, and even into the crosshairs of government agents and echelon operatives. Along the way, we formed a bond forged by danger and an unyielding determination to expose the truth. As the pieces of the puzzle fell into place, Amelia and I discovered that Subject Omega was not just a scientific anomaly, it was a sentient being with a consciousness that extended beyond the physical realm. It held the power to reshape reality itself, a power that could either bring about enlightenment or unleash chaos. Our story built to a climactic confrontation as Amelia and I found ourselves cornered in a remote cabin deep within the wilderness. Echelon had finally caught up to us, and a team of highly trained operatives surrounded the cabin, ready to silence us once and for all. In a tense standoff, Echelon's leader entered the cabin, a cold smile playing on his lips. He revealed that their true objective was not just to cover up Subject Omega's existence, but to harness its power for their own purposes. They believed that by controlling the creature, they could reshape the world according to their vision of order. As the standoff escalated, it became clear that Amelia and I were outnumbered and outmatched. Our only chance was a daring escape. 
In a flurry of desperate action, we fought our way out of the cabin and into the surrounding woods, but it was too late. Echelon's operatives overwhelmed us, and in the chaos, I was subdued. Our story ended with a haunting sense of foreboding. As I was forcibly taken away by Echelon, I exchanged the last glance with Amelia. Our eyes conveyed a mixture of determination and resignation. We had fought to uncover the truth, but in the end, the forces of power and secrecy had prevailed. I was never seen again. The cabin stood empty, a silent testament to a battle fought and lost. The world remained oblivious to the existence of Subject Omega and the unfathomable power it possessed. And in the shadows, Echelon continued to manipulate information and shape the destiny of nations, secure in their control over secrets that could reshape the world itself. I watched in boredom as yet another drop of sweat ran down my forehead and landed with a splash onto my rifle. This was my first time holding a gun, and I hadn't anticipated how heavy it would be. I looked over to my colleague who, in the blistering midday sun, frantically applied sunscreen to his pale English skin. Glancing down, I scanned the forest floor below the dense jungle canopy, fixing my gaze on the large chunk of elephant meat we had placed as bait. We had been sitting up in that contraption for hours by that point, waiting. I believe it's called a tree stand, but by its size it might as well have been a small watchtower. In case you're unfamiliar, a tree stand is a small platform that hunters attach to trees in order to gain a high vantage point over their hunting ground. The tree stand we were waiting in consisted of a fairly large rectangular platform with metallic rails running around its edges. How these grunts managed to install this thing all the way up here is beyond me. Damn mosquitoes. Dr. Fernsby, my boss, blurted out under his breath as he squashed the bug under the palm of his hand. I already knew he wasn't cut out for this environment. Fernsby was a veterinarian based out of Oxford. He specialized in the treatment of exotic animals, specifically reptilian and avian species. Though, I quickly came to realize that his specialization came strictly from within the comforts of a lab or a clinic, and not from the actual field. I was, at the time, a 25-year-old grad student and had been working part-time as Dr. Fernsby's research assistant for a few months before he requested I accompany him on this expedition. Even prior to meeting him for the first time back in January, I was already familiar with his work. He was a talented veterinarian and a proficient animal consultant to a number of wildlife preserves and zoos worldwide. It came to me as no surprise when I heard how adamant our employer had been that Dr. Fernsby be on board with the project. The doctor was the best at what he did. With a series of sudden and loud metallic thuds, my eyes quickly darted over to the large container fastened on the back of the flatbed truck that had arrived with us. It started shaking violently bobbing from side to side with each thud as if something within was trying to break free. The only things that kept the crate in its place were two sets of yellow ratchet straps, which seemed to loosen ever so slightly with each bang. The fact that the container hadn't fallen off during the treacherous ride over was a miracle in itself. Then two men dressed in camo pattern tank tops and cargo pants promptly exited the vehicle and made their way toward the shaking container. They each had something long and black in their hands, 
but from the distance they were at, it was hard to make out details. What do you think they have in there? King Kong? I asked Dr. Fernsby, trying to make light conversation. We hadn't spoken to each other a lot these past three hours. Huh? He replied confused, cocking his head to look at me. It seemed as if I had broken him from some sort of trance. In there, that container, I said, pointing toward the truck. Oh, he said. I don't know. I looked to my side at the other man up in the tree stand with us. A big game hunter from South Africa named Arno. I didn't know much about him, except that he had a reputation of frequently hunting large endangered mammals like elephants, giraffes, rhinos, and even lions on some occasions. All for sport. From the moment I met Arno, I could tell Dr. Fernsby took a dislike to him, and so did I Arno sat completely still, looking through the scope of his rifle, unfazed by the extreme heat and excessive insects. I wondered whose genius idea it was to pair a couple of veterinarians with a trophy hunter. Then, a loud humming, like that from an engine, gradually grew louder and louder. I figured I would soon get the answer to my question. I looked back over to the two men in tank tops beneath us. They had now climbed onto the back of the truck. They each unlocked a series of hatches on the container and inserted the black object through one of the various openings. A chorus of loud crackling sounds emanated from the container, along with rapid flashes of blue light. For a moment, the thuds from within became more aggressive than ever, almost knocking one of the men over. But as the crackling continued, the container gradually calmed down. The thudding died out, and peace had once again returned to the jungle. The low hum of the approaching engine also came to a stop, and the sound of a car door opening and closing could be heard below. It had been very clear from the start that these guys weren't involved with any kind of wildlife preservation group, as they had said they were when they first reached out to us. When masked men wielding assault rifles greeted us at the runway immediately after stepping off the plane, I knew Dr. Fernsby had made a serious lapse of judgment in coming here. Though, the fact remained, they hadn't hurt us nor treated us badly. Not yet anyway. If anything, they were quite accommodating. These men were surprisingly well-spoken and mannered, despite their frightening appearances. The platform started shaking as someone had begun making their way up the flimsy rope ladder. I looked down below me and saw a figure rapidly ascending. Apologies for the wait, gentlemen. The man panted as he had reached the top of the ladder. He stretched out his hand and introduced himself as Mr. Adebayo, our employer. He was a tall and handsome African man, who despite the intense heat of the jungle, wore a white three-piece designer suit. I am pleased to see my men were able to transport you here safely, I do hope you had a pleasant ride. The eccentric man said with a smile. I looked down at the deteriorated Humvee we arrived in and scoffed. Mr. Adebayo's gaze shifted toward Arno. Specifically, his rifle. Arno took notice. Don't worry, Carfentanil, Arno said reassuringly in a thick South African accent. Confused, Mr. Adebayo raised his eyebrows. Tranquilizer. Arno added, removing a cylindrical dart filled with clear liquid from his vest and holding it up. Good. Mr. Adebayo replied. And those? He gestured toward the munitions belt tied around his shoulder. 
It was filled with all kinds of bullets, from low caliber to high, and everything in between. Plan B Arno said. Mr. Adebayo pointed over to me and nodded toward my rifle. And what about him? He asked. Tranquilizer as well, sir. Arno replied. Gave it to him this morning. Pleased with the answer, Mr. Adebayo stepped back and smiled. I can't stress enough how important it is that we bring it in alive, gentlemen. Unharmed. That is why you two are here, Adebayo said and pointed to Dr. Fernsby and I. If anything should go wrong, I trust your expertise within this field should come in handy, doctor. A brooding and quizzical grimace formed across Fernsby's face. And exactly what are we supposed to be bringing in here? He inquired. Lions? Bigfoot? Adebayo chuckled. Oh, I can't do it justice by describing it, doctor. You have to see it with your own eyes. Besides, I wouldn't want to spoil all the fun. You might not dare to stay the night otherwise, Adebayo said with a smirk. Don't you think it's important that we know what we're looking for? Arno questioned with a hint of irritation in his voice. I could tell he wasn't one to play games. Oh, trust me, you will know when you see it. Adebayo once again vaguely replied. He took a step forward and continued. Livestock found mutilated, a village in ruins, and four people reported missing. This is not a creature from our world, I can assure you of that. I exchanged concerned looks with Dr. Fernsby. Without saying a word, I could tell that he only had one thing on his mind. This guy is crazy. Now, any more questions? Adebayo asked. Yet again, a loud metallic thud filled the air and sounded throughout the jungle, and I could hear the men in tank tops shouting at each other. What's in that cage? I asked, pointing down at the container on the truck below. Call it. Plan B. Adebayo smirked and winked at Arno. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before he turned around and walked toward the ladder. It will be night soon, I expect all will be revealed sooner rather than later. And with that, Mr. Adebayo climbed down the ladder, got in his jeep, and drove off through the dense vegetation until only the humming of his engine could be heard. And then, that too faded away. The three of us looked at each other perplexed, though we didn't say a word. Arno got back into position and resumed scanning the jungle for movement. As long as I'm still getting paid, he sighed. As time progressed, the shadows drew longer, and a beautiful orange hue dyed the evening sky. Yet, there was still no sign of whatever animal we were looking for. The chunk of elephant meat we had placed out hours ago had started decomposing, and a foul stench radiated throughout the rainforest. As far as I could tell, Arno hadn't moved at all during the past couple of hours. I almost refused to believe he was human. 
I looked down to the two men by the truck below us. They had set up a couple of hammocks in which they had fallen asleep an hour ago. Things seemed to quiet down in the jungle as well, fewer birds were singing now, and I hadn't heard movement from within the cage in what felt like forever. As I sat in the evening sun, taking in the serene rainforest that surrounded me, a faint scratching sound came from directly behind me. Curious, I turned around and caught a shadowy glimpse of movement in the corner of my eye. I searched the nearby branches of the trees next to ours, but I saw nothing. Then the shadow appeared again from behind one of the branches of a tree no more than 15 meters away. Before I could get a closer look, it once again disappeared from view. Something was traversing the forest canopy at incredible speeds. Slightly alarmed, I stood up and walked to the back of the tree stand in order to get a closer look. Neither Fernsby nor Arno had cared enough to notice my commotion. The shadow moved again, leaping from one branch to another, and then disappearing once again. It was even closer this time. The low evening sun made it difficult to make out any details in the gloomy jungle. Then, a high-pitched screech filled my ears as I saw the shadow leap out from behind the tree and land on a branch just a few meters away. Fernsby had definitely heard it by now, and he turned around to see what was responsible for the awful noise. The creature growled, and in the dark shadows of the rainforest I could barely make out its features. It was sitting there, perched on a thick branch, holding something with both its arms, eating something. The animal was vaguely humanoid in appearance, and covered in sleek black fur. Two bright specks of light reflected from the creature's large eyes. I inched closer to the metal rail on the edge of the platform in order to get a better look. Another shadow appeared on the tree to my right, and then another one on my left. Then another. The animal skittered across the canopy and drew closer to our tree stand. I felt a gust of hot air brush down the back of my neck, and I swiftly turned around to see a large dark face with grinning teeth staring directly at me. I'm ashamed to say the sight startled me so much that I nearly lost my balance and fell over the guard rails. Up close, there was no mistaking the identity of the creature. It was some species of monkey or ape. And up close, it was rather cute as well. Fernsby chuckled. Bonobo, he said with a smile. Probably juvenile, judging by its size. I stretched my hand out to pet it, but Arno protested. For the first time since Mr. Adebayo had left us, Arno moved. He turned around and looked me dead in the eye. Don't touch it. They are a nasty and vicious sort. You're better off leaving it alone. He warned me as he rolled up his sleeve and showed off a thick line of scar tissue that ran down his forearm. You don't want to lose an arm, do you? Though feeling that he was somewhat over-exaggerating the inherent danger, I still retracted my hand and took a step away from the innocent-looking ape. For a brief moment, the three of us all stood in the rapidly fading sunlight and stared curiously at the troop of apes. Dr. Fernsby watched in awe as the apes jumped around and played with each other. Fernsby had treated a couple of primates at the clinic back in Oxford, but seeing them thriving in their natural habitat must have given him a sense of childlike wonder he'd forgotten he had. Suddenly, one of the apes froze and tilted its head. Its large, dark eyes widened and it began uncontrollably screaming. Soon after, the others followed. 
They had gone crazy by the looks of it. Something had startled them. The primates scattered across the trees and as suddenly as they had appeared, they were now gone. At the same time, a flock of exotic birds caught and began rapidly flapping their wings in unison, flying above the canopy, away from the forest. They too seemed to be fleeing from something. A wave of dread washed over me. The air felt thicker now and the atmosphere had taken on a more sinister tone. Behind me, I heard Arno curse quietly under his breath. And then he cursed loudly. What's the matter? Dr. Fernsby asked, but to no response. Arno picked up his rifle and frantically scanned the forest floor below. No, 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 he blurted out. I placed my hand on his shoulder and asked him what the problem was, but again, he paid no attention to it. Damn it Arno, just talk to us, what's wrong? I shouted at him, greatly annoyed by this point. The meat. Arno finally said. Confused, I further inquired meat? What are you talking about? The elephant meat. The bait we placed. He replied. What about it? Dr. Fernsby asked worriedly. Well, bloody look at it. It's gone. Night fell swiftly in the jungle, and a thick cloak of darkness had draped itself over the clearing we had been watching. The only light visible came from the faint rays of moonlight that occasionally shone through the jet black overcast above. For the past 20 minutes Arno had been fumbling with one of the field radios he carried, trying to get into contact with the two sleeping mercenaries below us, but it was to no avail. Even if they were awake, I doubted we could get the radio working and get into contact with them. Whenever Arno tried broadcasting, only static interference could be heard coming from the other end. At one point he even changed the channels in order to get into contact with Mr. Adebayo, but the signal didn't seem to be strong enough, as he received nothing but static. Maybe it's due to those clouds? Dr. Fernsby theorized, pointing up at the dark storm clouds that drifted closer by the minute. I can go down there, if you'd like. Wake them up. I offered, but Arno protested, saying it wasn't worth the risk. Hey! Arno abruptly shouted, breaking the calm silence of the forest. He waved his arms up and down and shouted again. Fernsby shushed him and tried to get him to calm down. You're scaring it away, stop that. He warned Arno. Down below there was movement in the two hammocks. It worked. Shut up, Fernsby said again. You're scaring it. The animal, you're scaring it. Arno stopped once he noticed the two mercenaries were now awake and he had gotten their attention. He turned his head toward the doctor. Or attracting it. He responded to Fernsby. The men in tank tops promptly rushed to their radios, but only the crackle of static could be heard. With a greatly over-exaggerated gesture, Arno pointed over to where the bait had laid. The men turned and now too noticed that it had disappeared. One of them raised his hand and gave us a thumbs up while the other walked to the back of the flatbed truck and started unlocking the hatches on the container. What are they doing? Fernsby asked Arno, who just simply replied with plan B I presume. The large metallic door of the cage swung open, and the other man walked over to assist. They each grabbed a large chain and started tugging, pulling whatever was attached to it out of the cage. Meanwhile, I noticed three large drops of water splashing down on the railing in front of me. 
followed by a loud rumbling, and an additional two more drops. Down below, a deep growl could be heard as the two men had dragged whatever resided in the container out into the forest clearing. Attached to the chains walked a large dark figure on all fours. Clearly the two men must have given it some form of anesthesia, otherwise the animal could easily escape from its confines. Instead, the sedated animal walked slowly and without rhythm. It looked as if it could fall over at any moment. Once the men had pulled the animal out into the middle of the clearing, they each took their chain and bolted it down into the ground on opposite sides, binding the animal in place. A ray of moonlight shone through the thick clouds above, and we could now see the creature clearly. The poor animal was a large silverback gorilla, grotesquely tied down by massive chains on the forest floor below us. It was being used as bait. Live bait. I could see that Dr. Fernsby was furious. He turned to Arno and profusely yelled at him, but Arno shifted the blame. He didn't know what plan B entailed either. Though he wasn't directly responsible, I could see in his eyes that he had no remorse for the poor ape. He had probably hunted worse. Done worse. The slow patter of raindrops on the triangular roof of the tree stand had started picking up its pace, and streams of water ran down its corners. The rain combined with the inky blackness of the jungle made it hard to see what was going on in the clearing. A loud wailing sound could be heard from the gorilla, and as the two men walked back to the truck, the animal let out a soft whimper. It was heartbreaking, but there was nothing I could do. Not from up here, not with these men, and not in this rain. The mercenaries proceeded to climb inside the front seats of the truck to seek shelter from the rain. Can you see anything? I asked Fernsby who promptly replied with a firm no. The storm picked up, and seeing through the thick wall of the torrential rain proved impossible. Besides from the heavy splashing of downpour, the only sound that could be heard in the jungle was the cries from the chained up ape. Night vision goggles, bottom compartment, Arno said and tossed a damp canvas bag over to me. Give me a pair as well. The jungle lit up in a bright green fluorescent light as I put the goggles over my head. An electronic whirring sound emanated from the device. Though the rain still made it hard to see, I was able to get a view of the whole clearing now. I could see the gorilla, sitting on the wet mud, tugging at its chains, trying to break free. It wailed through the rain. Then a familiar stench crept its way up my nostrils. The smell of decay. The same smell that just hours ago had polluted the fresh jungle air. I recognized it to be the scent of the decomposing elephant meat. But, that was impossible, it had been gone for quite some time. However, now, it was back, and it reeked stronger than before. I swiveled my head back and forth, scanning every tree and bush that surrounded the clearing. No signs of life, and no signs of the source of the smell. A deep rumble sounded throughout the rainforest, quickly followed by a flash of lightning. With the night vision goggles, it was almost blinding. I rubbed my eyes and then put it back on, continuing to scan beneath the canopy. Ever so slightly, the tree stand trembled. At first I thought nothing of it, until it shook again, harder this time. I asked Fernsby and Arno if they had felt it too, but they brushed it off as being the workings of the wind. Satisfied with the answer, I went back to keeping watch, 
until the foundation of the stand was yet again hit with a powerful vibration. A faint boom sounded, followed by the tree stand once more swaying back and forth. That didn't sound like thunder, I whispered to the doctor. The wailing of the gorilla filled my ears, and I focused my gaze on the poor primate. It seemed alarmed. The gorilla desperately tugged at its chains. The goggles whirred as I zoomed in on the animal. The ape was intently looking behind itself, over its shoulder. And then it looked up, toward the wall of dense green foliage. You see that? Arno asked, tapping me on my shoulder. I adjusted my goggles and looked in the direction he pointed me at. At the edge of the forest, slightly to the left behind the gorilla, the tree line swayed unnaturally fast compared to the rest of the surrounding plants. Tall palm trees and large bushes got pushed from side to side, and the dense greenery made loud cracking sounds as if a thousand twigs had snapped at once. Something big was moving through the underbrush. Jesus, what is that? I asked Arno, to no response, who quietly chambered a round into his rifle and motioned for me to do the same. Even with the deafening splattering of rain, I pulled the bolt on my rifle back as quietly and slowly as I could. Having noticed all the commotion, Dr. Fernsby inquired as to what was going on, but he was quickly shushed by the concentrated hunter. Another deep rumble sounded, and the tree stand once again shook violently. And then another, followed by yet another. Whatever it was was coming closer. With each vibration, large ripples formed on the puddles of mud down below, and the distressed gorilla, fueled by adrenaline, hopelessly pulled at its chains. What is going on? Please just talk to me. Dr. Fernsby demanded in a frustrated manner. For the last time, be quiet, Arno hissed at the doctor. The sound of a large branch snapping in half shot past the noise of the heavy downpour, and through the thick rainfall I could make out a large shadow slowly emerging from the vegetation, about seven meters above the gorilla. I zoomed in with my goggles to get a closer look at the shape. I think Arno did too, as I heard his goggles emit a low whir. There, high above in the tree line at the edge of the forest, right behind where the gorilla sat, an enormous scaly snout had emerged from the leaves. Attached to the long snout were a set of large, sharp serrated teeth. It almost resembled the snout of a crocodile, except this was way more rounded and broad in its design. The rest of the head was still concealed behind the dense foliage making it impossible to get a better look at the rest of the creature. In the bright green of the night vision goggles, I could see vents of steam shoot out of the beast's nostrils as it exhaled. You ought to see this, doctor, I said, taking off my night vision goggles and passing them over to Fernsby. He put them on and searched around in the darkness for a while until he abruptly stopped and gasped. Even without the goggles, I could still make out the dark shape of the creature's snout poking out of the tree line just over a hundred meters away. Remarkable. Fernsby proclaimed, trying to zoom in with his goggles. A new species of megafauna, never before observed by the eyes of science. If we're lucky, we might get to name it. I jokingly said to him, trying to hide the nervous undertones in my voice. I could tell the doctor was awestruck, but I didn't quite share the same feeling. Sure the creature didn't look like a threat from way over there, but that head was suspended high off the ground, maybe high enough that it could reach the tree stand if it came over here. 
No, I didn't feel a sense of joy at this new discovery, I felt horror. Faster than the blink of an eye, the large beast came crashing down through the foliage and wrapped its twisted jaws around the torso of the poor gorilla. I witnessed in horror as I saw the ape being lifted high up in the air by the monster. The gorilla's chain snapped as the large beast shook its prey from side to side. It then put the great ape down on the ground and began tearing off large chunks of its flesh. Due to the dark I thankfully couldn't make out all the gory details. I looked over to Arno who had raised his rifle in preparation of shooting the large beast, however, I could see that he too was terrified. Below I could hear the nauseating sounds of flesh ripping and bones cracking. Just from its dark silhouette, I could tell the beast was massive. It stood maybe 6 or 7 meters tall, or around 20 feet for you Americans. It seemed to be mainly bipedal, although it alternated between using its massive forelimbs for support. The creature had a long and thick tail covered in scales which it used for balancing itself. When it was done eating, it lifted its enormous head and sniffed in the air. Steam oozed out of its nostrils with each sniff. In the faint moonlight I could see the reflective glistening of blood around its mouth. Had it caught onto our scent? It let out a deep snarl and took a few steps toward us. The ground shook each time one of the animal's powerful hind legs slammed into the ground. Give him the goggles, Arno whispered to Fernsby. He needs them to see what he's shooting. Fernsby handed over the goggles and once again I quickly put them back on. In shades of nauseating green I could see the monstrosity in way more detail now. A thick plumage of what looked like feathers covered its rigid back. My gaze shifted to the head of the creature. It had large reptilian eyes, like that of a snake, with small cartilaginous ridges rising above each eye socket, probably to shade them from sunlight during the day. Jesus Christ! What does Adebayo even want with a freak of nature like that? Fernsby whispered. Power, I'm guessing. Arno replied. He is a warlord after all. There is no way he could ever get control over that thing. I shot in. Agreed. Then, to everyone's surprise. The headlight beams of the flatbed truck suddenly turned on and illuminated the right side of the animal. The large animal cocked its head and walked over to the vehicle in which the two mercenaries sat. No, no. No. Turn it off, turn it off. I heard Arno whisper under his breath, readying his rifle. Down below I could hear Frannick shouting in a language I didn't understand. The beast lowered its head right besides the front door of the cabin and used one of its big eyes to peer in through the window. The shouting abruptly came to an end. The beast let out an ear-piercing roar and in one fluid motion it swung its head and sank its sharp teeth into the metal exterior of the truck. It bit down and tore off the roof of the truck cabin. Arno and I raised our rifles and shot at the creature. It didn't even flinch. With my night vision goggles I could see the two men cowering in their seats. One of them unbuckled his seatbelt and exited the truck on the opposite side of the creature. The remaining man fumbled with his buckle, but couldn't get free. The creature cocked its head curiously to look at the trapped mercenary. I reloaded my rifle and took another shot at the beast. It had no effect. The creature came crashing down on the truck, the mercenary screamed as the animal ripped him from his seat and lifted him into the air. 
The screams came to a sudden stop as the beast raised back its head and swallowed the man whole. A loud shouting could be heard coming from the left side of the large animal. The other man stood out in the middle of the forest clearing. Moklumbembe. Moklumbembe, he shouted as he raised an assault rifle and took aim. Before the man could pull the trigger, the monster grabbed him with one of its forearms and raised him high over the ground. Arno took another shot. A loud crackle sounded, and a bright flash appeared around the man. The animal loosened its grip and the mercenary fell face down into the wet mud. He had used his stun baton to get free. The man crawled along the wet forest floor in an attempt to escape. The large reptile caught up to him and pressed one of its legs down onto the man's back, crushing him and leaving a massive three-toed footprint of blood and gore. It bent down to feast on what remained of the poor fellow. In unison, we both took yet another shot at the creature. This time it flinched and snapped its head toward the location of the tree stand. It bellowed in agony and began making its way to where we sat perched. Just as I was about to take another shot, my rifle jammed. I tilted it to the side to see that an empty cartridge had gotten itself stuck in between the chamber and the bolt, slightly poking out. In a panic I looked over to Arno, hoping he would know how to fix it. Pull the bolt back, damn it, he shouted. I did as he said, but it wouldn't nudge. I felt the ground tremble beneath me as the creature stood only a few meters away. In a panic I dropped my rifle just as the powerful jaws of the animal bit down onto the platform. It shook its head from side to side in an attempt to detach the tree stand. I fell backwards on the floor, landing on my side. My night vision goggles slipped off my head and slid down off the platform, disappearing into the dark shrubbery below. The beast let go off the platform and instead walked to the side of the stand. It circled us for a while, snarling and growling while it was trying to figure out how to get to us. Then it stopped to our right. Somehow it had identified the support cables that held the tree stand in its place. It hissed and tore at them with its powerful claws, until finally the sound of a taut metal cable going limp filled my ears with dread. Hold on to something. Dr. Fernsby shouted at the top of his lungs just as the tree stand lost its balance and tipped over. I grabbed the metal railing and braced for impact, but it never came. We never hit the ground. The stand hung suspended at a 60-degree angle from one of the remaining support cables. Bags, boxes, and crates slid down the wet floor past me and fell down into the jungle below. The creature roared beneath me. It sounded like a chorus of rusty chairs being dragged across a concrete floor. I looked around to see that Dr. Fernsby held on to dear life by one of the rails on the opposite side of the platform, but there was no sign of Arno the hunter. Below I could see the open jaws of the animal snapping after my legs, I was just out of reach. Then, to my horror, the railing bent and bent until it finally snapped, sending me falling for what felt like an eternity. I hit the wet mud of the forest floor with a soft thud and saw that my colleague also lay beside me, unmoving and covered in dirt. Still no sign of Arno. I quickly rose to my feet and rushed over to help Fernsby when a large shadow cast itself on the ground beneath, ominously looming over us. I brushed mud and water out of my eyes to see the animal standing a short distance away, looking down at us. 
It cocked its head and I could see its raw muscles tensing in anticipation of leaping forwards. Then, someone's loud shouting filled the air. Arno stood in the middle of the clearing, holding his rifle. He waved one of his arms and continued shouting. He had managed to capture the creature's attention, and the large beast turned toward him. My ears rang as he shot at the creature. He wasn't using the tranquilizer darts anymore. The beast let out an agonizing roar and began running in his direction. Seeing my opportunity, I helped Fernsby get to his feet and we made a run for the Humvee parked right beside the now ravaged flatbed truck. Lucky for us, the keys were still in the ignition. I slammed my foot down at the gas pedal, and the tires began spinning, slinging mud in every direction before the vehicle finally started moving forward. Through the windshield I could see the massive beast standing in the middle of clearing, partially illuminated by the headlights of the truck. In the creature's mouth, Arno hung from his left arm, writhing in pain. A thick stream of blood ran down the arm and covered the hunter's body in a sickly shade of crimson red. The animal bit down and Arno fell to the ground. He clutched at his severed arm and cried out in pain. The animal's head then pummeled down, and the screaming finally stopped. I turned the car around and drove onto the dilapidated dirt road we had arrived on. Palm trees and jungle vines passed by as I floored the gas pedal. Behind, I could feel the ground trembling, and in the rearview mirror I could see the beast giving chase. It took long and powerful strides, swiftly and elegantly running on its hind legs. It reminded me of the way a large terrestrial bird would run, like an ostrich or an emu. The large carnivore had started gaining on us, quickly covering great distances with each step it took. And then, it stopped. It just stood there in the middle of the road. Had it suddenly decided to give up? Just like that? In the rearview mirror, the creature gradually began shrinking. It let out a final bellowing roar, before it disappeared into the thick jungle by the side of the road. The rubber windshield wipers desperately wiped away the pattering rain on the glass of the Humvee as I continued to speed down the muddy thoroughfare. As we rounded a sharp turn, my eyes were drawn to the dismantled jeep that laid upside down in a ditch on the side of the road. Its tires were ripped off, the tail lights blinked a bright red, and large claw marks ran along its side. Since we were moving so fast, I didn't get the chance to properly investigate the scene, but as I sped past, I could have sworn I saw a white blazer covered in specks of crimson hanging from a branch on a nearby tree. It took us no more than two days to leave the country and fly back to England. We didn't bother trying to report our experience to the local authorities back in Congo, we didn't expect they would believe us anyway, and we definitely didn't want to get into any trouble. We packed our bags, and left with the first plane available. Dr. Fernsby is still a little shaken up after the traumatic incident, but he is mostly fine. This all happened a few years ago, but I felt it was important we finally share what happened to us that fateful day in the humid jungles of the Congo Basin. As of late, I've seen news articles online detailing discoveries of ravaged towns in the Congolese countryside. The few remaining survivors blame the disaster on an entity they call Moklembembe. When I first read it, I knew I had heard the name from somewhere before, and then chills shivered down my spine as I recalled the last words of the brave mercenary. In his final moments, 
He had called the beast Moklembembe as well. I've done some research and have come to find Moklembembe describing a large quadrupedal animal or water spirit that resides in lakes and rivers. Moklembembe is described as an herbivorous reptile possessing a long neck, like that of a sauropod dinosaur. Some people believe Moklembembe is living proof that Mesozoic era dinosaurs survived into the modern world previously thought to have gone extinct around 65 million years ago. However, the description of Moklembembe does not match the beast I encountered that night many years ago. The creature I encountered certainly didn't have an abnormally long neck, and it for sure wasn't herbivorous. This begs the question, are there more of them out there? Different species? Is there an undiscovered ecosystem thriving in the deep recesses of the Congo Basin? waiting to be discovered? According to the Congolese government, around 80% of the jungle around the northeastern part of the country remains uncharted, who knows what mysteries are left to unfold. What wonders, secrets, and horrors are left to be observed under the watchful eyes of scientists? I've made attempts to contact Dr. Fernsby, but I have as of this moment not received any response. I'm using my university to try and raise funding for this next expedition, and so far the council seems to be on board with the idea. Of course, I haven't told them everything, not yet anyway. Ever since that night, I have had an obsessive compulsion to return to the jungle. The lull of adventure and discovery is calling upon me. I have to go back. I have to know if something has survived. In the picturesque countryside west of Eugene, nestled near the quaint town of Veneta, my wife and I experienced an extraordinary encounter on a warm summer day in 1985. Riding our trusty Vespa scooter, we reveled in the wind whistling past us as we coasted downhill, our laughter carried away by the breeze. As we descended, the vibrant green of the Oregon landscape enveloped us in a sense of serenity. The sun filtered through the leaves, casting dappled shadows on the road ahead. Our carefree spirits matched the carefree speed of our scooter. With the wind tousling our hair, it felt as if we were in our own little world, blissfully unaware of what lay just beyond the curve. With each twist and turn, we ventured closer to an unexpected spectacle that awaited us. As we rounded a bend, our eyes widened in disbelief. There, in a shallow ditch, lay a creature that defied all explanation, a massive Bigfoot, sound asleep. The creature's sandy brown fur was tinged with hints of reddish hues, its immense form cocooned in repose. The scooter's purr transformed into a soft hum as we glided closer, our fascination and trepidation mingling in our gazes. The creature, normally so elusive and rumored, lay there in all its glory, its chest rising and falling with each breath. Its features were remarkably detailed, from the dark pools of its closed eyes to the impressive muscles that defined its arms and legs. And then, as if sensing our presence or perhaps the vibration of our approach, the Bigfoot stirred. Slowly, its eyes opened, and we found ourselves locked in a gaze that transcended the boundaries of our worldviews. The creature's gaze held a mixture of curiosity, surprise, and perhaps a touch of amusement. It was a moment suspended in time, the boundary between reality and fantasy blurring into an indistinguishable realm. As our Vespa coasted past the dozing giant, 
my wife and I continued to look back, our expressions a fusion of awe and disbelief. The creature watched us, its gaze lingering on our retreating figures, as if acknowledging our shared connection in that fleeting instant. The rest of the ride back to our home was a whirlwind of emotions and hushed conversations. We grappled with the enormity of what we had just witnessed, struggling to reconcile our encounter with the conventional reality we knew. Who would believe our story? Could we even believe it ourselves? In the years that followed, my wife and I found ourselves revisiting the day in our minds over and over again. We became avid researchers, delving into the mysteries of Bigfoot sightings and accounts. The memory of that summer day fueled our curiosity and guided us on a path of exploration we never could have predicted. We shared our tale with a select few, who listened with varying degrees of skepticism. Some dismissed it as a fanciful fabrication born from the excitement of a downhill ride, while others entertained the possibility that we had indeed crossed paths with a creature that defied explanation. Now older but still filled with the same sense of wonder, my wife and I continued to revisit the spot where we had encountered the slumbering giant. We never saw the creature again, but the memory of its gaze remains imprinted on our souls, a reminder that the world is far more mysterious and magical than we had ever imagined. Our Vespa rides have taken on a new significance, each journey a testament to the inexplicable moments that can alter the course of one's life. And as we ride together through the hills west of Eugene, near Veneta, we know that even in the most ordinary of landscapes, extraordinary wonders can be found, if only one dares to believe in the possibility.